When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I'm great today. I'm great. I'm ready to talk and laugh and just have a great time. And how are you, by the way? Uh, I am good. I'm doing really good in that uh, I think our guest is going to do all the heavy lifting today. We just kind of have to give him a prompt and he's going to be off and running. So I'm going to fully enjoy this episode. I think our listeners will too. Okay. We didn't say who our guest is. Oh my our God. Guest, <laughs> our guest today is David Wilde. He's a little bit or a lot of everything. He's a, a rock journalist. He writes and produces television shows, award shows. He's a big macha. We got him because we thought, oh, Rolling Stone. We'll just ask Rolling Stone magazine stories. I think he was also the youngest West Coast bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine. That is correct. Uh, we barely touched on that. He is a uh, writer. He was nominated for an Emmy for his work on America, a tribute to heroes. He was actually at the Emmy Awards this year, and so he's got a few stories to tell us about that. So before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that Holly is in charge of our YouTube page. Why don't you tell us all about it? Well, we know this is going to be a long conversation, so we are going to post a lot of outtakes on our YouTube channel. Very exciting for our listeners. Now we have enough subscribers that we were able to have a customized YouTube page. The URL is, of course, your YouTube.com. Then you do a backslash C backslash what difference does it make podcast? That's what they gave us. So we can't shorten it. You could also do a search for what difference does it make podcast and find us. But it is wonderful and worth subscribing to. And you will find lots of fun stuff on there. Lots of uh, outtakes from my interviews. So check it out. And thank you. Enough of our yapping. Let's get into it. This is David Wild on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yeah. Hello. Hello, David Wild. Look at that. Hi. It's David uh, Wild. It's it's a pleasure to see at least one of you. Wait. <laughs> oh, no. Which one of us do you see? I don't know. I can't really see. No, I'm joking. I, I, <laughs> I, you start. <laughs> for reasons I can explain, I haven't slept in a month, so I, I, I'm punchy, but I promise I'll be coherent once uh, you ask a question. You can be punchy and coherent. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I'm on, a, do you know the podcast, Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny at All? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm on that one today, and I literally did that the morning after losing the Emmy and having, I did a big special uh, last weekend in New York for 9-11 that was crashed in two or three weeks. So I had literally not slept in 
in September. I have since slept, so I have no oh, good okay. real excuse. We prefer our guest punchy anyway, so that's... Uh, yeah, I'm just going to repeat whatever Fee Wee- Weebell said. Uh, <laughs> just, I'll just quote him. Yeah, we owe, that's, how, that's a good way to go through life. And yeah. wait, can we go back to, don't say losing the Emmy. Let's just say you didn't win this year. Uh, no, I'm going to say losing the Emmy. Is I actually it? won a daytime Emmy a few months ago, like two months ago. So I know the difference because in one, they give you an award and in the other, <laughs> you stop at El Pollo Loco because all they gave you was a box of dried apricots uh, and, and you maybe got COVID from being in a room with, you know, uh, uh, Gene Smart. Seth Rogen kind of touched on that. That was he Holy thought. Shit. Yes, that was yeah. unbelievable. It was exactly what everyone was thinking. Exactly. Really? So they said it was going to be outdoors. Yes. Are we are we recording on this? Oh, part? oh yeah. We're we're oh. going now. We're this is all oh, this, this is all going. But we we edit. Okay. This is not going to be edited. What I will say is, what's really funny is. Uh, it's a metaphor, a simile, a metaphor. I don't know if there was a like in there anywhere. I'll say like. Uh, it was a simile for everything in TV production right now because the journey of getting nominated this year was, it's always insane, but this this is my 20th anniversary. I got into TV because I was a head writer for the Tribute to Heroes after 9-11. So I'm having like, this has been my full circle year of everything coming back in, in a mask. You know, where previously it was not. But the way it worked this year was the show got nominated for, you know, outstanding the Grammys, I should say, for outstanding live special. But when you're nominated for a show and you're one of the producers, they don't actually tell you who's nominated, even though you think you're nominated. So there's like the three weeks, the usual two or three weeks before someone says, yeah, you're a nominee. Then the day after that, they wrote and said, and you're invited to go the weekend to the Shmemmies, you know, the weekend before <laughs> Emmys. As that's Kathy Griffin's term, but I've always loved that. Uh, and you and your wife, your lovely wife, or my lovely wife. I'm not going to say I don't know if you have lovely wives, but I do. And she was. We RSVP'd, and then the next day they call and say you're uninvited because <laughs> we're going to do it outside. And I think I know what that means because we did the Grammys in the convention center outside. So. I know how that is, and that's very comfortable for me at this point. And so then they call a couple of days later and say, but that means you can't go. And then they call and say, but that means you can go. And then they say, we're moving your award to the main show. And then they say, that means you can't go. And then they say, that means you can go. And then they say, no, you can't go. And then your executive producer, Ben Winston, great man, he said, I'm not taking no for an answer. And he fought to get every one of us into the Emmys, like, and, and my wife, I'm like, just, I'm a Jew. I don't know if you picked up on that, but I'm like, I actually call and say, I don't need to be there. It's not important. I'm not, you know, she said, no, you don't tell them that <laughs> right. you're going to go. Uh, I think she meant, she thought maybe that meant she would go. Cause she's been able to lose many Emmys with me, you know, and, and I enjoy losing next to a very lovely woman because the camera can see her cry and not me. <laughs> it's much better, but none of those rules applied. But the craziest thing was we you got there being told, and I thought I knew it was going to be just like where we were for the Grammys, and we were in a tent that had walls and did not feel outside. So uh, I think Seth Rogen did speak for many of us. Now, I know what it's like to do TV production. I know I've been through it. I've done virtual shows and real shows over the last year, but it felt crazy. It, you know, show business has always been crazy, but it officially, it is gonzo to be like yeah you know i have a one in five chance of winning and what maybe one in a hundred of dying 
it was sort of that vibe. Okay, first of all, you're clearly a producer, not a director, because your framing is horrible. Can you tilt down your camera a little bit so we can? There's a lot of headspace, or just kind of. What do you want? Like I see, there's a there's a lot of space, but I'm like, I can't see your chin. Is basically. You don't want to see my. Well, I mean, come on. It's not a great chin. Can I see? Well, I'd like to. Okay. It looks like you're you're drowning. You're you're falling in here. All right. Well, let me explain to you again <laughs> the 2021 of it all. My house. You picked Wednesday, and my house is cleaned on Wednesday. So I am hiding out in my son's room. And you would think my his son, the guitar player. No, but I have in in 20 years of Grammy gift rooms, I get sent a lot of guitars. So it really isn't a decoration more than you know. He hasn't played since uh, School of Rock when he did Sweet Child of Mine. Uh, uh, to take us back to the 80s. Uh, I'm hiding in my son's room, hoping the vacuum doesn't go off, uh, having yeah, to write something for a Beatle today, having to write a, a monologue for a different show for one of my favorite comedic actors of all time. And I'm most obsessed with it not the vacuum not happening during this podcast. I understand. I mean, I've got we've today is uh, is garbage day, so I'm I'm concerned about that. I mean, it's just this is our well, this is our life now. I, I think I'm looking at your backdrop, and I think it's good that you have a clean up garbage day. I think there's yeah. some stuff. <laughs> it really, up. it's honestly, go. I I know Not I have. He's got it all together, but frankly, you you look almost like me, and I don't know why you're criticizing my backdrop. No, I I understand. I know it's uh we're in the middle of a renovation, so don't. It's, yes. Oh uh, no. It's, oh, believe me, I was going to be outside with my great. Hollywood Hills view, but unfortunately someone's doing construction next door. Oh, okay. And, and I'm just doing this because my wife met you at some function and said you were nice, but so far <laughs> I'm not really feeling it's, it. It's I'm not feeling it. I understand. Actually, we did. Nice here one. we go. We bet. Yeah, we met. Oh, Dodgers go blue. We did. It was the 5k, the Dodgers 5k. I, I did it too. Okay. Well, <laughs> my wife and I. She ran. I walked. You, yeah. Okay. Clearly, oh, because you were. That's why you didn't meet. That's why she pointed. My husband is. She, you know, she was pointing way <laughs> yeah, back there. Exactly. It's my husband. We'll finish in a few hours. Yeah. He's. I hope he's still alive. It but doesn't you know. matter. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter when you finish. Well, that's, yeah. That's when I see at the award shows the please hurry up. It always makes me think of my wife. It just has that. Oh. Always, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's. It a, always is. Please move wrap on, up. Move along. Please oh. wrap up. I watched the Emmy, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. That uh, the mine. oh okay. The, no, please. Was it the the director who who won the um I think for the Queen's Gambit was when oh, he Scott was like Frank. they were playing yeah. him off and he's yeah. like oh really like it was yes. a lot of attitude. Did that play as horribly as it did? in holy <laughs> shit! Did that the the thing that played best <laughs> in the whole show? And I love Cedric as a friend, and I love him. The thing that played best was Conan mocking the head of the Academy. Oh. That. Yeah, that was a big hit in our area, you know, <laughs> with me and my gals, Gene Smart and Kelly <laughs> Cuoco. That's where I was the ugly guy. It was like I had like the best seat of an ugly person in Emmy history. I don't know why. Doesn't matter. It raises Emmy. your stock level when you're at that table. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. it's the one time I don't wear a baseball cap all year and I'm <laughs> on camera constantly it's like it's like to get emails from like did you know your hairline's receding it's like <laughs> and, uh, it's like yeah i'm well aware of it that's the reason i love the dodgers so much is it covers that up part of the friggin' time oh the, yes so yes that speech played so badly 
he literally was sort of being, it was sort of a background murmur into booze from everyone right? there. And my, what's funny is I, I tweeted something mean about it in the moment, took it away because I think I said, I don't, he's a powerful guy. I don't want to be right. God, Frank, he could hire me for something. <laughs> then my wife was like, can you fucking believe this? To which I then put another tweet out, which was something like, just between us, I wrote the first hour of Scott Frank's speech. Oh. <laughs> and, and to which all these like powerful Hollywood types liked it. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're all, we have a consensus that this guy came off like a douchebag. Isn't that amazing? That's like passing notes around in school all now. That's that's oh, crazy. Right. Yeah, and the Conan, teacher is talking and you're, you're, you're no, giving notes tweeting. to everyone. Yeah. Oh, no. And Conan was like three tables away and he was the hit of the night because he was like he was sort of doing live hate tweeting of the event sort of. And then he got up when we lost our award. We lost to Stephen Colbert and he got oh, up that's... there for that. And what the irony is, if if we had won, I would probably have been seventh in line to say something. So I never would have said something. <laughs> But in my mind, I was going to say two words, which was an artist who was a friend of mine who we lost. I was just going to say John Prine. Oh. You know, Scott Frank could have said John Prine in the 8,000 words he said, but he never said anything other than like 80 versions of uh, patting himself on the back. All right. So there's 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 your wife and here's John Prine. Is that, is that uh, the, the scheme of things? I, oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So equal, equal amounts. However... When it's in front of uh, millions and millions of people, you're going to mention John Prine ahead of the, the wife. Okay, I got gotcha. you. I got it. The last time I saw John was at the Grammys, and it's like, I'm, by the way, you're hitting me on a, a particularly weird emotional day because, like, the reason, and we, you haven't introduced me or said I'm great or anything, so I'll just keep saying things that suggest I'm great. But uh, <laughs> we do that afterwards. We'll say that. We do we'll the we do the pre-introduction oh. after you're long gone. <laughs> My long after I'm long-winded. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the thing is, today is the 20th anniversary of when my life changed because 20 years ago, from when we're recording this, I'm sure you'll maybe never air this or like on the when you after a rerun of Fee Waybill uh, or the British guy who says he knows John Mellencamp, who <laughs> Scottish. You know, he was Scottish, by the way. You you should I just, recognize. Yeah, him. I just want to say. Screw him because <laughs> I I have my book Cougar coming out and you're not going to give me any publicity because you're got to do Melon Camp. Uh, you got to be all fancy. Yeah, uh, we are. We are uh, fancy here, as you can tell. I'm, I was born in a small town, okay? Unlike the Brit who was born in some Scottish uh, heath. Um, in any case, <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, I don't the know. 20 years ago today was the Tribute to Heroes, the telethon after 9-11. And that really is, I was a... I hope you'll have said I was a very semi-distinguished rock critic for uh, Rolling Stone. That's how I started out. But the the day my life sort of changed and my career changed was I had written like for the MTV Awards a couple times. Oh, oh, Vicky, the cleaning lady, is now going out the door, so we might hear more noises. Oh, okay. Good. She might be getting the uh, wow. Vacuum. You've pinned her, so you know exactly. Okay, we've located oh, no, her. Have, we've located Vicky. I'm technically capable of that. No, no. My wife has put me on something called Life 360. Are you aware of Life 360? Yep. We so don't I get use to know, it. But yes. Oh, it's a weird thing. It says things like first, it says like every time someone has a like chicken dinner stolen, uh, some Postmates or something stolen, you have to get an alert like something bad has happened in LA like you don't like is it like I assume nothing bad is happening in LA also it tells me when my wife arrives at her office 
but because it's my kids are on this, it says mom has arrived at the office and her mom is leaving the office. And the truth and my mom died a couple of years ago. So it is very unnerving to see mom is leaving. You know, I, it's, it's a very upsetting. You I hate this app. You don't call your wife mommy at all? No, I definitely do not. Ew, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. These are your issues. Clearly, anyone yeah. who names their show after a, a song by Morrissey and Smiths is, has issues with women. Uh, by the way, did we you name it for the you... Smiths? Of course. All right. Yeah. Can we talk Morrissey so we don't talk about myself the whole time? Uh, you know, you are our guest, so we're you know supposed to figure out who you are. Okay, wait, uh, I have a question first. <laughs> yes. What small town were you born in? Uh, well, <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay, you so now me. See, Holly's the smart one. She is. In truth, the truth is I was born in New York City, not a small town. Oh. I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, which is a small town across the bridge, also home to Leslie Gore. And, oh, here's a fact. Again, getting to know me in this incoherent moment in my life, here's an amazing fact. My first interview, because you'll have mentioned that I'm one of the most respected interviewers before I became this award-losing <laughs> and occasionally award-winning, the one, uh, the 2021 winner of the Muslim Public Policy Award with Cat Stevens. That's another thing we can get into. Okay. That's true. All right. 2001, a Jew winning the Muslim Public yeah. Policy Award. Quite a year. Uh-huh. But <laughs> what were we actually talking small about? Small towns. Yeah. You're a small Can town play. guy. That's all we oh. know. Oh, yeah, Leslie so Gore I, and, yeah. Yeah, I have I'm, family oh. in Tenafly. Who? Uh, the, last name is, <laughs> the last name is Tunic. I love the Tunic. I wear a Tunic. <sighs> um, the, uh, the, the truth is, my interviewing career began when I was, I don't know, sixth grade. George Benson, the jazz guitarist, singer, great talent. When he had Breezin, when that came out in the 70s, he moved about 12 houses away from me. And my first interview was me, like 11-year-old me Just or whatever. Knocking on the door. His house, <laughs> knocking on the door. Right. This is this is a really crazy story, but I knocked on the door. He let me in and introduced me to Michael Masser, who was a songwriter, and they were working on a song called "The Greatest Love of All" that he was about that that George was about to record for the Muhammad Ali movie, "The Greatest," which is a weird ass movie in which Ali plays Ali yeah. in the Ali story. But that is where the song that Whitney Houston made famous began, but it was first cut by George Benson for the greatest movie. And I, at nine years old or whatever I was, am sitting there watching them work on it. And 
over the years, it's that, that, that moment has really come back to me because, like, I had John Legend do it for when Ali died. I worked with Ali. I actually met Ali 20 years ago today with Phil Rosenthal when he was on the Tribute to Heroes. And Phil and I wrote something for Will Smith and Ali to say. And there's a lot of stories about that. But, again, this is uh, – you're, you're just getting the least coherent version of me, but I've heard your podcast and I think you need a little incoherence. I a little, think... little punch. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're We're pretty incoherent. Th- mission accomplished. Yeah. Well, we try and stay focused and you're, so, you know, we go with our guests. So we, we go yes. with the flow. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, and you got, you're, we're going to get a lot in, in this, however long we whoa. end up having. All right. So 20 years ago. Okay. So according to Wikipedia, which is always telling, it, it never lies <laughs> always to me. True. Always oh, right. All right. So it tells me you were the head writer how did you, how'd they give the keys of the car to you? What, what would, what did you do? How did you get this like extremely important gig? 20 years ago, again, a great question. Uh, And I, I, that exact fact hit me last night because that's the first show I was ever the head writer of was that broadcast, which was on every network in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason was that Joel Gowan, my first, the only writing I'd ever done was, uh, we had done in 1994, a Rolling Stone year in review show on Fox. And if you can find it, please send me a copy. I don't have <laughs> and it was rather low rated because they made the very bad decision not to have a host so that it was literally just me off camera interviewing. Like, I think I did half or most of the interviews, but it was like Spielberg, Howard Stern, Katie Lang, I don't know. It was just like a thrown together Rolling Stone year in review show. But during the interviews, I think I said a joke to Spielberg or said something that made him laugh. And Joel Gallen said, you know, despite all appearances on this show, they said, you're funny. Why don't you write jokes on the MTV Awards, which I produce? So my first time I ever walked into a writer's room, I think it was movie awards or film awards or MTV VMAs, whatever it was. I walked into a room and it was me. It was Louis CK. I think it was Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. So, and you can only imagine how happy they were to see me, (laughs) (laughs) but, but that was, I'd written like for a couple of those shows. And then in 2001 on the Thursday night before the Grammys, which are on a Sunday night, uh, Ken Ehrlich called me and said, ah, would you like to write the, I got left a message saying, would you like to write the Grammys? Now that was in the days of answering machines. And I, whatever reason, didn't hear the message until Friday morning. So we're now talking two days before the Grammys. And I got the message and I called him back and I said, do you mean this year's Grammys like right. the one in two days? And what had happened, if I remember correctly, uh, was that I think Whoopi Goldberg was supposed to host the show. I think she got sick or something happened. And at the last minute, it became John Stewart. And so I was thrown, and, and the absolute truth is, I had a weird gig interviewing rock stars at Universal Records in Santa Monica on Friday and Saturday. It was like interviewing like a bunch of them. And so he said, are you available the next 48 hours to write the Grammys with me? And I went, absolutely, which was a lie, because I absolutely was not available. Did you realize Um, it it is 48 hours, like no sleep, I'm sure, right? Straight 48 hours. When they say 48 hours. I'm a trend. I haven't slept since that call. Yeah. Uh, But he literally said, I said, absolutely. And he goes, okay, come down and meet with Jon Stewart tomorrow. And I believe 
I went down to the Staples Center and I met with uh, John Stewart and his writers, his other writers at the time, for just for John's host stuff. He had Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel, who were then like the man right, show. Right. And so it's like me, I walked into a room with them and I went to John, who I had not met, I don't think at that point. Or, and I said, John, I want you to know, I'm here for you. I'll just be down the hall. I immediately walked down the hall, got back into my car and left and went to Santa Monica to interview a rock star and then drove back and forth like a 60s movie where you have like two girls in two rooms right. and you're like- Got a date and, with two. And yeah, yeah, for it. the next 48 hours, I and thank God one of those days was like a holiday or something. There was no traffic, but I was just going back and forth on the 10, trying to help Ken write the Grammys and- interview rock stars i've been writing the uh, and the grammys uh, since then uh so that's this is my 20th anniversary of the grammys and that was the only show i'd ever really network show i'd ever written before i was asked to be the head writer so your question was it was just because i think joel had my number because yeah. if you remember 9 11 was on a tuesday this was Friday night. He got a call from, I think it was Jimmy Iovine, but saying all the networks are going to do this telethon. And then he called me and goes, can you be my head writer? And I said, yes, because I've learned that's the most important thing is just always say yes. Yes. And yes. Yeah, and. Definitely. Are you qualified to do this? Yes. Which was definitely <laughs> no, like all sorts of things happened in that next, that show was done in a few days. And it was stuff like the absolute truth, which my wife will yell at me if she listens to this podcast because she probably will because she thought you were nice. Uh, 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 again. Why, again, why is this? Why do you have to put the, the quote? Agree to disagree. Okay. I don't know. I think it's like unbelievable. I think, Holly, I think Holly's the likable one. Well, that, yeah. again, <laughs> it's. Right. Because you're married, because it's the table you sit at, it raises your stock. You know, if you're sitting with Gene Smart, oh, this yeah. guy's got to be all right. If I'm next to yeah. Holly, it's like, okay, he's, someone's got to be all right with this guy. You're good yeah. by, you're nice by association. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So, but the, the absolute truth is, and this is true. I think a key moment for that show, and I don't know if you have saw that show or if you remember that show, but the truth is, a lot of the reason it's good, and I watched it once on the 10th anniversary, oh, wow. and I started watching yeah. a little bit last night. The truth is that show tone was set in large part by the fact that my wife picked up the phone before me that night, that Friday night. And I overheard Joel saying to her, we're doing a telethon for 9-11. And my wife, who's like the loveliest person, something about this really rubbed her the wrong way. And she goes... That's a horrible idea because yeah. this is not about stars. This is not about celebrity. Mm -hmm. This is about, you know, these about real life heroes or whatever emotion she was feeling, which we were all feeling at that yeah. time. But I literally took the things she was telling Joel, sort of yelling at him a little bit, and I wrote them into the opening, which is what Tom Hanks says in a much nicer tone than my wife, who was mad. That's sort of what set the tone for the writing part of the show. Yeah. I didn't sing the songs, but even things like Joel that I remember that first call, he goes, I think we have, and he told me a few artists, he goes, can you think of what song would be right? And the one I always, I think my favorite song of all time, and one that I, I'll tell you, literally just last week, I had the same experience. This was not like a time when you had like iTunes and you had everything and I don't even file my records. I'm like you. I'm a mess. Yeah. So, uh, but when he said, we have Stevie Wonder was one of the artists. And I said, there's a song called Love's in Need of Love Today. Yeah. And it's my favorite. I've always loved it. But just that title was what came to my mind. 
But the weirdest thing that ever happened was when we rehearsed it 20 years ago in about an hour or two, he came in, I remember that day, when he did the number and we put the lyrics up, I realized this song from Songs in the Key of Life, I think the greatest album of all time, mm. I think it's 76, it is 9-11. It literally is someone saying, I'm an announcer, we're looking at the world, it looks like everything's ending, but we have to react by sending our love in right away. Good morning, good evening, friends. Is your friendly announcer? I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say could mean the world's disaster, could change your joy and laughter to when I heard that song, I'm like, okay, there's something, there's a force trying to make us make a good show here. Cut to maybe about three weeks ago, I had gotten a call to tell you the truth about maybe earlier this year, I was told there might be a 20th anniversary, sort of 20th of America tribute to heroes. And then I never heard any more. So sort of like a lot of things in the world, it had gone away. Three weeks ago, I got a call from an organization called 9-11 Day and a producer I knew who had done the concert for New York, which was the other big sort of TV event after 9-11. And he goes, these people don't want to let this go away. And CNN really wants to do a show to honor the families and, you know, from the families, for the families of 9-11. And I was like, but that's like three weeks from now. And these TV events are not done in three weeks other than the tribute to heroes, that doesn't happen. But we did a show called China Light on uh, CNN on 9-11 with Jake Tapper. And her was the opening and closing artist, you know. And I think in a weird way, she was the perfect. I was so excited. We had her, Common, Brad Paisley, who's a good friend of mine and who I work with a lot, and Maroon 5, and Jake Tapper hosted. But the musical highlight of it for me was when we were discussing songs, again, someone said, okay, her has one song in mind, but if we want her to close it, do you have another song in mind? And I said, love's in need of love today. And 20 years later, I think those are in 20 years of being really in TV and music. Those are in two in my top five are love's in need of love today. And it was, you know, to stand there, you know, looking over ground zero with those lights shining and having this great mm -hmm. artist reinterpret those sing those same words it just brought my whole past 20 years full circle ah oh, david's talking he's talking he's going he's got amazing stories we love it but you know you gotta you gotta cut him off at some point let's take a break right now Welcome back to the What Differences It Make podcast and our super special guest, David Wild. 
So let me ask you a question. Does your wife feel any differently now about, or does she still hold the same opinion that she did? Oh no. Well, what's funny is she'll, she's going to hate this, but <laughs> truth is 20 years ago, an hour ago, I remember we, I was in the same house, no guitars in. I think LA Times had written an article about what was happening, the tribute to heroes. And they said it was happening in CBS television city. And my wife, we had two young boys, I think four and two at that point. And she said, and I don't think she's ever really used this word. And I know I've never used it with her. She was afraid that this being announced was going to be dangerous, that someone was going to try to bomb our Mm -hmm. CBS television city. And she said, we have two young children. I forbid you to go to this today. I forbid you. And I said, and I don't believe me, I'm not a I'm not defiant one, but I said, I love you. I love our kids. I'm not going to the Middle East. I'm going to CBS Television City and I'm going to be fine, which was true in the end. The last time I was right. And no, I think she loved that broadcast. And it actually, I did notice that I had to fly on two red eyes to New York to do this show in the recent weeks. And as we all know, in this pandemic, like when you decide to fly and get in a mask overnight on a red eye and all that, you know, I thought my wife would say, I don't want you to go to New York. I don't, you know, she never said that. So I think in 20 years, it's the only argument I've ever won. She just wanted you, <laughs> she wanted you out of the house, I guess. It's been, this pandemic has been a little Possibly insane. There's awesome. that too, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was also thinking like, your Grammy story, like going back and forth from Santa Monica to LA, if this was post 9-11, you would not be able to do that. There is no <laughs> way. Exactly. Yes, it was crazy. And the thing is, uh, I remember really well, I'm trying to think if it was that, because John Stewart hosted twice. One time it was the year that um, Elton John and Oh, and Eminem did that? Yeah. Uh, And I remember just like sitting backstage making Eminem jokes with Adam Carolla, Jimmy Kimmel, and John Stewart. And I thought, this is the best job I've ever had and i remember john stewart said like during while we're watching we're sitting there looking at what's happening on the show and ken erlich is standing there and he goes you want to die coke or something and i'm like no you're hosting the grammys i could maybe get my own soda right now (laughs) thank you but but i did think i love this job and the thing is i still do like you know 20 years later it's one of the craziest like live television in particular is an insane challenge but For the way my mind works, in as much as it works at all, is that it works quickly. And that's my favorite thing is uh, responding in real time. And that's what I learned from, even though there were no jokes in the Tribute to Heroes. We did subsequent telethons where there was like one or two jokes, but there was none on 9-11. I think Chris Rock maybe said something with a wink. But it did teach me that, like, I think the purpose of television is, like, on a very primal level, what I think is... Why do people turn on a TV or now it's like when on their phone, why do they click on something and watch something? And I think it's like, it's because they want to feel connected to something like that's the primal. Like if you walk into your house and you want to relax, maybe you don't turn it on. But if you, if you do turn something on, it's you want to connect with other people, feel a part of something else. So I think that's what being that being the tribute being so early in my career, that's what it taught me is like, find ways to connect. And even like the Grammys this year, when we were nominated and lost. I heard about that. I heard you lost bad. I heard it was (laughs) just, it wasn't even close. They showed the the results and I I wasn't even anywhere. I I believe it was super close. And not only that, (laughs) here's, here's the kind of things that go through your head when you lose. It's like, we lost to Colbert's election special. If Trump had won, 
there's no way that election special is winning. So I really lost. It wasn't Trump that lost. It was I'm the real loser of that election. (laughs) So you blame Trump again. I mean, you could blame Trump. Why not? Let's blame Trump for for keeping this this trophy away from you. I blame Morrissey and Trump. (laughs) I I blame Morrissey for the title of your show. And I blame Trump for losing the Emmy. Okay, so you just made a point about writing for comedy, writing comedy and writing more serious writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're a funny guy. You must prefer. Well, I think you're funny. Dave has a, you know. (laughs) I don't know. Actually, by the way, speaking of, I I really enjoyed your Emmy tweeting. I thought it was great. And I love the photo of you with Gene Smart in the background. Oh, well, thank you. I haven't even told you the weirdest fact about (laughs) the Emmys night, if you want to know that, which is... (laughs) This podcast is... is it's off the rails. Wait till you hear it. Yeah, it's yeah, off it's the like, rails. Because my wife wasn't going and because it's like, A, I was like, I didn't know I was going until the last minute. I was in New York filming that other show. I got back and my wife said, okay, go rent a new tux, you know? And I'm like, I am not renting a tux because I'm not with you. So I'm not going to look good no matter what. And I had just been in a, bought a new suit for a wedding. So I said, I'm going to wear my suit I'll buy a real black tie to go with my dark suit and I will drive myself and I will park myself. And I'm not, because, you know, you can spend a lot of money on these events going and, and, you know, I met the first, the tribute to heroes was my first nomination. I didn't get paid a cent to do the show, but we bought a new dress for my wife. We bought a tux, rented the tux for me. We got limos. We bought tickets for her. Uh, sister and her, you know, so it, that losing investment cost a lot of, a, yeah. a, so I I've learned how to be much more efficient in my and losing. You lose, oh, good. Yeah. Yes. So this year <laughs> I drove myself. Oh, but so I got there a little early and I walk. And so you, when you get to the red carpet, they're like, I'm like, there's a line of people and they go like, and I go like, can I just walk into the venue, <laughs> out, you know, the outdoor venue that I thought was going to be there? And they said, well, where's your publicist? And I said, I don't have a publicist. <laughs> And it was it was only me and Ken Jong, who's a close friend, and Rita Wilson, who I know very well. We were like the three people there. And so I said, can I go around? And they said, yeah, yeah, you can go behind the photographers, just sneak in, you know. But who were you wearing? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I was wearing Men's Warehouse. Oh, nice. With, uh, <laughs> I did have a fashionable mask because my son said, the cool mask. And I, I've, I tweeted it. It's a super cool store on Hillhurst. What's it called? The super yes, cool store that. on Hillhurst. I know everyone yeah. knows where that is. Yeah. I, maybe it wasn't Hillhurst. I'm All of them. But I did have a cool mask, but, oh, but I walk into the tent which is not a tent. It's a friggin' room. Did they take and your temperature at all or anything like that? Emotionally? No, well, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Uh, interestingly, it was a rectal thermometer. Oh, okay. No, uh, it was not. Because uh, you get to request which way you want it. You get a choice. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is show business. Yeah, of course. It's appropriate. Here's the thing. I'll just be honest. They, I've been tested, thank God, negative every time for a hundred shows. But this was the first time you got the notice saying you have to test Friday on and before the Sunday show. And here are the places that we are recommending you go and we're not paying for it. So this is the first time I paid for a rapid test, which is why I was not paying for extra parking or limo or any of that stuff. I'm, I'm just a humble writer producer. I'm not a star. And how much is parking by the way? Or uh, when you're parking, parking was free. <laughs> oh, parking was free. Really? Okay, uh, that's nice. Uh, but Score. I went up the wrong way. 
I did, I got yelled at. I did get my temperature taken. I, I passed that with flying colors. Nice. Uh, you I seem like a 97.9 guy. You weren't, uh, I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> Stop, I want to hear the story. All right, I'm just trying to, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so I, I walk to my table and I think, because I'm kind of a pity attendee. This is like CBS supposedly has just sort of squeezing me in there. I think I'm going to be in a terrible table. I think I'm not going to know anybody. I walk in and there's a one man and his date because he's a director who was nominated and they got a date. But it's a guy and I look and I go, we realize we feel like we know each other because it was a guy named Jamie Widows who has been a hero of mine forever because he played Hoover in Animal House, (laughs) one of the movies that made me love comedy right off the bat. And probably the reason I could write a few jokes in the in the last 20 years was I loved Animal House and Monty Python, which is another whole story. But so that's like early defining your comic sensibility. And I loved this guy. And then weirdly, I went to a prep school called Loomis Chafee in Windsor, Connecticut. And when I moved to LA 30 years ago this year, 1991, for Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone moved me out here to be the West Coast Bureau Chief of Rolling Stone. And the first email, I think when email was invented, I got was <laughs> from Jamie Widows, who has become a big TV director over yeah. the years. He directs sitcoms. And he wrote me and said, as the like head of local uh, alumni in Los Angeles and the Hollywood community for Loomis Chafee, I welcome you. Let's have lunch. Let's get together. That was 30 years ago. We never had lunch. We never <laughs> got together. Oh, the vacuum might be coming in. Okay. And... Um, <laughs> Or someone lost a pizza in uh, El Segundo. So I walk in and it's Jamie Widows. For 30 years, and I don't know how anything works, including my phone, but for some reason, because he wrote me that email the first day I had email, he's the first contact in my phone. So that for 30 years, I have been occasionally looking down and going, why is my phone calling or writing Jamie Widows? (laughs) I've never met him. We've never spoken. I walk in and we're sitting, we're the two people at the table. And he is the greatest guy I have ever met. I'm having the best time with him. He's asking me about how this school changed my life. It changed his life. He's the head of like alumni for the school. And I'm a guy who dodges the letters asking to give money right. nine yeah. out of 10 years. That's why he never uh, returned your calls. Or, or that. No, I never returned his call. Uh, <laughs> finally have the horrible Emmy box meal. That's our first meal together. I think we're friends for a lifetime. He at 68 or seven, I think he said, this was his first nomination, which immediately made me feel like wow. love him and make me feel much better oh about losing all of my many you know nominations and then we got to lose a new one together but as i tweeted that night i feel we both won because like i actually feel like i made a friend finally that i've been trying not to have for 30 years made a friend that is a crazy story that is really a crazy crazy story story. What, what was he nominated for what was his he was nominated for directing mom Oh, uh, okay. And the funny thing is for the first hour of the show, he was like every, you know, everybody, because people like the ta- our table was uh, Ben Winston, who is executive producer of the Emmys and James Corden and the Friends reunion and, and some people I knew. And then other people kept, kept coming over and he goes, wow, you know, everyone. And then during the show, Kelly Cuoco, Allison Janney, all the people he, he, he directed Kelly Cuoco in her first uh, show with uh, 
her first sitcom many years ago. So between us, we felt like the two most important Loomis Chafee alumni in on earth. So it was really exciting. So you're, you're going to make a sizable donation to the school now. I'm going to make, (laughs) I'm going to make a donation that's very small and make a lot of noise about it so that uh, it seems like I've made a sizable donation. Oh, okay. The Hollywood way. Okay. I gotcha. I see. I see how you operate. Yes. I'm donating my fee from this podcast to oh. okay not that many jewish kids go to those kinds of prep schools do they you, you, why are you thinking i'm jewish where did you, you tell me you, you've no, already okay. you've <laughs> already admitted uh, to and it and i recognize the mot okay absolute <laughs> uh, absolute true story is that uh my parents marriage exploded it was at one point they had the record for the longest divorce in new jersey history quite a record and my uh, my dad went in to meet a guidance counselor who said uh your son was getting A's last year and he's getting D's right now. You better airlift him the fuck out of here. Like he's, he's like, it's like he's in Vietnam, get him to another place. And my father then took me in a car and said, we're going to look at all the new England prep schools. We drove to choke the petty school, all these ones, but we got to Loomis Chafee in West in Windsor, Connecticut, but that's near West Hartford where there are bagels and Jews and everything. (laughs) And he saw a sign on the, like, uh, coffee shop saying Jewish students union. And my dad said, you're going there, which is the same as when we went to college, he took me on the tours and uh, uh, believe it or not, I was smart before I got into show business. And so like we went to, I got, I got into every school I applied to, but he went, that's great. You're going to Cornell. Cause I went there and he had gone there on a scholarship and he goes, I just want to pay for you to go to college so that I can go fuck you to every frat boy who was ever rude to me. So I really had no choice in either prep school or college, and I'm very happy about both. And you joined a frat, and you went, fuck you, to your dad? I did not, I, okay. I did, I did not. I okay. Did not. Good call. <laughs> All right. Um, can we talk – you've mentioned Rolling Stone a couple times. Oh, Holly still has more no, uh, no, no, more school-type questions. <laughs> Holly's yeah. the fa- – she likes to know about family and, and how, how that all get, comes together. <laughs> I had a family Ask a Rolling Stone question. Started. I don't even know if you're part of Rolling Stone or not. We were looking at the top 500 songs recently. Apparently, you are not a voting member. Oh no, I am. Uh, my I was a contributing editor up until like three years ago. Like this whole time, the absolute truth is okay. You uh, say that a lot. The absolute truth. How many times do you lie during a day? <laughs> a lot. So I'm gonna I'm gonna note every time I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's like on TV where it says live and you realize that's the only part that's live oh, yeah. um, on the screen. <laughs> um, uh, Giveaway secret, trade secret. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm loose now. Yeah, um, he's, he's punchy. Uh, yes. I, what happened was Rolling Stone was my dream job. I got out of college. I got very lucky because I was at Cornell. I studied with a visiting professor in creative writing named William Kennedy, who the year I was with him, and he's the only professor I really ever got super close to, he published Ironweed, which won the Pulitzer Prize. So I had a Pulitzer Prize winning wow. author as my creative writing teacher. And that was enough to get me not a job out of college, but an internship at Esquire magazine. I was the first mm-hmm. intern since Jodie Foster, who had gotten her internship so that she would write about John Hinckley. Uh, that's the absolute truth. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and I, I walked into Esquire for two years, started a record column with a woman named Lisa Bain. And in that year, in that moment where Esquire was a very powerful magazine, I literally, we could get, 
We had Tom Wolfe, John Updike, John Waters writing record reviews for a brief period. And Jan Wenner noticed that and hired me away. The music editor was trying to become the managing editor. So two years out of college, I was brought in and made music editor of Rolling Stone. So I had the most meteoric rise that has never, it's really been pretty much downhill. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I had like, I, I was the music editor, like a couple years out of college at Rolling Stone, my dream job, which eventually your dreams change. Yeah. So you're 25 years old and the head of Rolling Stone and you're right. And I guess that's, there's the music editor. Okay. <laughs> but, but so these to music, us, that's the head of Rolling Stone. What? So this year, this must've been 1943. 19, okay, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so a young Frank Sinatra comes in. and well, <laughs> exactly. He says, kid, he says, uh, <laughs> and that's when I invented the Rat Pack. That's the absolute truth. There you go. Okay. I've learned when he says absolute truth, that means just, we're, it's all bullshit. Everything, what I'm about to tell you is an absolute lie. <laughs> the, the absolute truth, <laughs> truth is, this is an absolute lie. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute truth is, uh, I graduated in 84. I was Esquire for two years. 86 came to Rolling Stone, which has, again, for your wow. 80s, your 80s theme show, it's like, I will be honest with you that in my heart, I hate the 80s. And I, I realize I don't. Maybe it's because I was born in the 60s. But in the 70s is really where my heart is. So that, like, when I get in a car and I put on serious ra radio, it's always 70s. Uh, when I... We'll go when I think about American film, it's always a 70s film that I love. But I realize now that that's so I got to a Rolling Stone during this go go time when like the magazine was huge. I don't know if you if you look at a magazine yeah. now, they're like this, but mm -hmm. I was there when it was like that. And that was exhausting, which is why I eventually decided I wanted to write and not be an editor after like five years, 10 years of it. I got sick of editing other people's words and I wanted to write my own words. So I ended up eventually getting sent out here to be the West Coast Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. And that's how I fell into TV and <laughs> producing. Wow. And I got out of journalism, even though they kept me on the masthead as a contributing editor. And I still write, you know, I'd write things every once in a while. The truth is I've really, basically the last 20 years, I've been a writer and producer in TV. Wow. Bastard stepchild to music. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> We've touched on it with other writers, but like there was a time where you could actually write a, a bad review. If there was something, apparently you didn't like the 80s, music came in like, I could say something bad about the, this new U2 record or something. The greatest thing that ever happened was being a journalist. And the worst thing that's happened to being a journalist is when I was a rock critic, you know, when I was a non-aging rock critic, if someone didn't like what I wrote, they had to write or type a letter to the editor, put a stamp on it, send it. And then maybe if someone intern did something terribly wrong, you'd have to look at something saying you suck. But now we live in the world where, you know, it, you suck is instant and, you know, constant. Uh, so I was, journalism paid well when I was doing it. Journalism was, you were sort of respected and uh, it was fantastic. I That said, I was not a great journalist. I think I was okay or pretty good. I think I got the absolute truth is I was only pretty good. What's weird is that I found my way, I think, as a writer, my, <laughs> I won't use the word gift, but my shtick, my angle, the thing that's allowed me to help my wife, who's much more successful than I am, put our kids through school and all is that I discovered that despite everything you're experiencing right now, I am a good listener. And 
the trick is I only listen to really famous people and I know how their voices sound so that my gift was really, I was pretty good at the Rolling Stone stuff. I've recently paid the monthly or annual fee so that I can read my own shit in Rolling Stone because it went behind a paywall. Yeah, right. I know. But, and I go, and I always thought I sucked. And then I go, no, you know, every once in a while I look at something, I go, that wasn't too bad. But the truth is the reason I think I've worked and Holly mentioned like, you know, a lot of people just write jokes or just write serious shows. And I have, I think, worked a lot until right now, until my I ruined my career with this. I've worked a lot because I found out I had a good ability to write for other people's voices, which is entirely what I've done in TV is like, I do remember one of the first things I ever wrote was a really bad show called the Blockbuster Awards, <laughs> you know, which uh, it's like, it's like if Netflix in hell, it was the Blockbuster Awards. You got the Cable and, Ace and then you had the, the Blockbuster yeah. Awards. Yeah. yeah I gotcha. and, and I remember Jeff Foxworthy was really big at that moment with you might be a redneck if. So I wrote and he was supposed to give out an award for best reality show or something. And I wrote a bunch of jokes of you might be a reality TV fan that ended with that runner and he looked at them. I remember really vividly because it was like, I think the first person I wrote for was Dennis Miller and Heather Locklear, the famous hosting duo yeah. uh, for the billboard awards. But then it was Jeff Foxworthy looked at this, what I wrote and he goes, this is really weird. And I said, what's really weird. He goes, this is good. <laughs> he yeah. went like, he goes, That's nobody nice. who doesn't work with me can write in my voice unless it's me or it's one of the two or three people. And that's the only thing I have some point of pride. I remember Dennis Miller, same thing was that he and Heather Locklear hosted the Billboard Music Awards. That's again, like one of the first show. And like my first day with talent, working with a star like that as a writer was a promo shoot. And uh, the same thing, he went, uh, he looked at the joke and he goes, this joke does not suck. And that still is like my mind. That's high praise. Yes. It really oh, yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, Ken Does Earl, not suck. the Grammys said my co-writer on the Grammys for all these years, and he was produced it for up until last this year and a big, you know, supporter and booster of mine. But the first thing he said to me was, he goes, David, I want you to know, I think all television, all writing on TV for these events sucks, but you suck less. And uh, <laughs> I still think of that as the model. <laughs> like uh, I did an event, a giant event I shouldn't mention, but share i wrote a joke for share a few two months ago and again like it's like when i write for you know the current you know star it doesn't have the same impact as someone who was famous when you were a little kid right and literally share and sunny and share is maybe the first time i was aware of funny writing on tv donnie and marie and sunny and share and for 10 years i worked or more than 10 years i wrote i still write the cmas but we had Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley as our host. And the first time we did it, I tried to say to Brad, who's a very smart guy, I said, you're Sonny, you have to be an idiot here. And he was like, I'm not an idiot. And then the first time, and Carrie Underwood, who's really brilliant, said, just say the joke. Yeah. And the first time he got a huge laugh with saying something stupid, he loved it. And he went, I get it. Yeah. I'm sunny. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, like a month ago or two months ago, I'm sitting here in this I've virtual world that. and yeah. watching a joke that Cher is reading. She's it's like footage of her reading a few jokes I wrote for this thing. And she goes, that one's kind of funny and <laughs> laughed. And I was like, that is, that's my Emmy. I have a Peabody. I have a daytime Emmy, but that's my real award is when a, someone who I loved growing up 
likes something you do. That's the best. I think that's really rewarding. It oh, is. Yeah. Totally. That's yeah. all right. Also so what, rewarding money. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So when this, <laughs> when this all thing, when this thing goes down, you know, you can't get any writing jobs. You can go as a, you know, like there's tribute bands. You could be a Jeff Foxworthy tribute artist and just uh, write for him. <laughs> just dress up like Jeff Foxworthy and tour around the country as Jeff. And, you know, I think uh, I think we got or some share. moneymaker here or share. Exactly. I, I, I think a share impersonator is probably a, a more common gig you can get. <laughs> I can see you as share. Yeah, I think that's a good. <laughs> but not everybody can capture her. That is. Yes, no, I, I definitely couldn't. Uh, yes. All right. So at the beginning of this episode, like years ago, when we started talking, you mentioned <laughs> you're going to be writing for a beetle. Which beetle and how do you capture that voice? A, a limit. It's one of two beetles. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, huh. uh, the but, uh, picture uh, on my phone, uh, which I can show you, which I'm sure will really come across really well uh, to show you. It could be either beetle. Don't you t show me a picture of both of them with you. Going to be no. blacked out with a notification of someone's Amazon package got stolen. <laughs> exactly. This is Paul with my two sons at the backstage at the Grammys, and oh, oh, that's nice. here's, here's that crazy. Oh, that's story. your that, that's your Twitter photo, by the way, right? That that's, is, yeah, yeah, that's, okay. That's, yeah. that's one. That's my Twitter photo, and it's one of the most meaningful ones for me because, okay, thirty years ago, I went on the road for Rolling Stone with Paul McCartney around the world. We went to South America. Oh, Linda yeah. was. That was Linda's last big tour with Paul. Linda, unlike Holly, occasionally someone will take a liking to me. And Linda liked me. And for some reason, she did things like she took a photo of me backstage and said, I know you write books, so here's your free author's photo. So I have, I have <laughs> a portrait that I could put on books for right. years by Linda McCartney. She also, most importantly, when we got back to the States, we went through New Jersey, where I'm from. <laughs> And I think maybe she had someone in mind to set me up with. She goes, do you have a girlfriend? And I went, I actually just met a great girl and she's in New York visiting on, she was happened. And this was my wife, Fran now, but she goes, I want to meet her. I said, well, she's in New York. She could come out. She goes, bring her, she goes, invite her to sound check tomorrow at giant stadium. I was uh, at that show. Show off. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, well, and, uh, <laughs> And what, oh no, the best thing is a Paul McCartney sound check is better than a Paul McCartney concert because he does nothing from the concert. He did only yeah. other Beatles songs or early covers or favorite. He just riffs. And to this day, I went to one a couple of years ago. That's how he does it. Now he yeah. sells these tickets to that for charity to raise money for great causes. But at that point, I was the great cause, was trying to get me laid. <laughs> and so Linda said, Bring this girl. And this is like, my fourth date with my wife is this. So that's why I'm still married. And even though my wife doesn't like music or didn't then, this was a good invitation to lunch. Yeah. So we watched Soundcheck and then we had lunch with Linda and Paul's like there in the afterwards. That's a hell of a good date. But after that, Linda pulled me aside and she said, I'll never forget it. She goes, do you think I know about marriage? And I'd been on the road with them and I realized they had this amazing marriage. And I went, yeah. And I grew up in a divorce family. I didn't know much about good marriages, but I could tell this was better than that. And she goes, marry that girl now. And I went, what? She goes, just do what I say, marry her now. So that was Linda's gift to me. I, I proposed to my wife within a few months of that. Wow. We got married really quickly. And so cut to Linda sends me the photo, Linda gets sick and Linda is gone. All 
so sad. But when Paul finally, you know, years later came to the Grammys, which he had never done, I'm backstage at the prompter working with talent, which is what I do. Like we we run through what the script is and we make changes and add a joke or take a joke away. My wife, who smartly kept our kids away from show business, by the time they were like 12 and 14, said, okay, they can come to the Grammys one show a year with, with her. That's like the only show my wife ever came to. She's coming backstage to where I am and she goes, I have to show you a picture. And that picture is, my wife took it because she's walking down the hall to find me and Paul McCartney jumps up and says, and I tell you, even backstage at the Grammys, everyone is trying to get a photo of Paul. He does not ask to get a lot of photos. Paul said, I need a picture with those boys. And my wife took this picture of Paul surrounding the two of them. For years after this, I had two theories. One, Linda's spirit was telling him this because there's no way Paul could have remembered what my wife looked like and realized it was my kids. I couldn't believe that could be the case. Or the Jonas Brothers were on the show that year, and the boys looked a little <laughs> bit like Jonas Brothers. I am from New Jersey. So I thought it's one of two things. It's either the hand of God through Linda or it's the Jonas Brothers scenario. Cut to for the anniversary of, I think it was the 60th anniversary of the Grammys. I'm so tired now, I don't know. I was sent to Chicago to, to talk to Paul about the Grammys. We were told you have 10 minutes with Paul on the side of the stage before he goes on to this amphitheater in Illinois. So I'm standing there grabbing quick questions as he's about to go on stage. We finish a minute before he goes on stage. So we're standing there on the side of the stage. And I said, Paul, I got to ask you one more question, not for this. And he goes, what? I go, and I told him, I said, I have the two things it could be why you asked for this picture. And he started to tear up. And I, he said, don't make me cry before I go on stage. And I realized it wasn't, the you know, at least in, in our hearts and minds, it wasn't, it was Linda. So that's why that will always be on my phone. Always. That's, that's the uh, most important photo of all to me. Amazing. Give a shout out to your wife. Can you mention your, you haven't talked at all about who your we wife separated is. separated this morning, so it really wouldn't be. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's not uh, funny. Uh, Fran, Fran Leslie Wild Turk. Fran Leslie Turk Wild. Her maiden name is Turk. Our wedding, E from the Eels, who might be an artist you guys like. Uh, I don't know yes, if you like Yes, very e. much so. E, e was a man called E. He was a solo artist Mark, yeah. right at that point. It was a week year before I think he formed the Eels. But he was a groomsman at my wedding and one of my close friends at the time. He sang with the band that was like made up of some like Bonnie Raitt's guys. It was a really great band. But he sang Mrs. Turk, You've Got a Lovely Daughter as a surprise to me, you know, and he also sang in my life, the John Lennon song. So all of this, a lot of full circle stuff. Oh my goodness. In my life, just the name of the song, just hearing it makes me (laughs) tear up. Oh, we hadn't looked at our wedding video in years, but like, yeah, when I hear him sing it and I knew he was going to do that, but then I didn't know he was going to add on Mrs. Turk. You've got a lovely daughter to the tune of Mrs. Brown. You've got, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Herman's her, of course, everyone's favorite Herman's Herman's. Yeah. I, I once, uh, was I had lunch with Herman, Peter Noon, (laughs) one of the funniest guys ever, super funny. And then he called me back the next day when I was going to 
a Ringo rehearsal. And I literally had to say, uh, Peter, can I call you back? I'm walking into a Ringo rehearsal. He goes, he goes, the fucking Beatles. I always have to wait. <laughs> also, this is another... <laughs> Uh, I I know you're out of time, but I'll no. edit. This, this, oh, is, a, this is all going to be chopped up, everything, but go ahead. <laughs> this is a great true story. The thing that most people, and not, most people don't know who I am, as your numbers will show when you get the download. <laughs> people who notice me or stop me on the street, they always notice me because I'm all over the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, those CNN documentaries that Tom Hanks, Playtone did. Uh, with Mark Herzog, and I've consulted on all the music episodes. So my consultation was always put me in a lot of them. I'm really good. Yeah. Uh, but the funniest one was around the time we did the Grammy tribute to the Beatles. That was another thing I lost a, an Emmy for. Uh, was writing that special. Around that same time, we were working on the first episode of the '60s music episode, which was the British Invasion, which is really about the Beatles. So I was consulting working with Playtone and Hanks and uh, Gary Getzman, who's Hanks's partner, and Mark Herzog on those episodes. But then for a few weeks, I had to then focus on the Grammys and the Grammys Beatles tribute. It was all this intense period. So at the Grammy tribute to the Beatles, Tom Hanks was a guest at the event. And backstage, he goes, David, have you seen the final edit? Are you seen the latest edit? And I said, no, I've been so busy. I haven't seen it. He goes, as a joke, I said, but I hear there's way too much of me. And he went, holy shit, is there too much of you? He goes, there's so much of you that I had to go have Dave Clark from the Dave Clark Five <laughs> say some of the things you said so that it wouldn't just be you and me and Questlove talking about the British invasion. So cut to the end of that show we send immediately, we're sending Ringo and Paul on their private jets to the Letterman Theater so that we can film them with Letterman in the theater, which, because the whole special was marking the 50th anniversary of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So on the way there, Ringo had requested from Tom Hanks a copy of the British Invasion episode to look at on the plane. So Ringo watches it on the plane, and when I hear from him next, he goes, David, uh, you were great in the British Invasion special. He goes, but there was too much Dave Clark. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I remember. I was always. I love that. Uh, I think this. I love that there's still a little bit of that Beatles Dave Clark five rivalry going. That's funny. We had Dave Clark on the show, and he said just the opposite. That <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I have things I cannot say about Dave Clark. <laughs> Oh, you can. We'll edit them. Out. <laughs> yeah. I would, if I said them, he would not be glad all over. Oh, there it is. Okay. We can't. I will only tell you bits and pieces. This is very, this is, this is some prime Dave Clark humor. <laughs> all right. So, so this will be your last job. Okay. So uh, <laughs> one day, when we, one day we'll get you back on the show. Maybe we'll talk music or something. I, I don't know, but uh Oh, Holly, oh yeah. Holly has another family type question for you. No, no. Can we just talk one bit of music? The, yes. We're, we're going to have to have you back to talk about all these other topics that I wanted to cover. Can we just stay? Was... Do I have to leave? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could just stay. We're going to we're gonna go do our... Or... Do you have something Beatle related Do, to do? Doesn't Vicky have some work for you to do? Or... Oh, couldn't it be Dave and, Ho Dave and Holly? Like when you are on hiatus, when, when Dave, yeah. you have vacation? Yeah. I'm... The other Dave. Yeah. Oh, great. Or villain it, Dave. Yeah. It's like All right. the other. It's like uh, the other Darren. On I'm, so I'm going to be Dave Clark. <laughs> now I'm Dave Clark. Okay, great. I see what's happening <laughs> here. Yes. Yeah. That. I'd, I'd love already, another side. All right. So I. Yeah. Question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, just speaking of the music, because you said specifically you don't, the 80s isn't your favorite decade, but you're a 70s guy. So what, we asked this question of a lot of our guests, who was the first concert you saw? First concert I saw, which actually ended up helping my career, weirdly, was my dad, right before he left, my mom got into bluegrass, specifically the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, who had an album called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And I think it was like, you know, for him, it was, he called it Jewgrass, but he liked bluegrass. I, it is. I understand, he took, yeah. He took me when I was nine to see Diggory Dirt Band and their opening act, who was about an hour from becoming world famous, was Steve Martin. And the combination of country music and comedy, yeah. huge impact on my life. Uh, I remember very vividly my mother going, what is that smell? What is that perfume? And it was the pot, pot of everyone in 1970, yeah. whatever it was, four, five, whatever, at Carnegie Hall watching a country band. That's probably the reason 20 years ago this year, Brad Paisley was playing backup on a number with Dolly Parton at the Grammys. I, being a Dolly Parton fanatic, because I love country, I'm talking to Dolly and Walter Miller, the director, late great, who was in the Emmys in memoriam and another big guy in my life. Not only did he direct the Grammys for 35 years, he also was the executive producer of the CMA Awards, the big country award show. And he goes, David, I heard you with Dolly. You know country music. I go, yeah, I love country music as well, even though I'm from New Jersey. And he goes, I'm going to bring you down to do the CMA Awards. And I will be going down there in a few weeks to do them for the 20 or 19th year, the CMA Awards, because of Walter realizing I knew something to talk to Dolly Parton about that was not the obvious. Phenomenal. Dave no. shares a birthday with Dolly. Yeah. Um, same year? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Same year. I, Dave's, I, I, Dave's a couple years old. It's all, yeah, it's all smoke and mirrors here. Can I tell you my Morrissey? Since, are you a big Smiths fan? We love the Smiths. We are part with Morrissey. It's, uh, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough okay. to love him. But go ahead. Uh, we, we yeah, Last no skin question. off our teeth. Yes. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I know I'm wasting your time, but I'm... Uh, you are not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was a student in England. My college girlfriend went to Oxford and I hadn't even applied. And I went, holy shit, she's way too cute. I can't leave her in England uh-huh. with British guys. So I applied to some program in London that was like the deadline had not passed and got into some bullshit program uh-huh. in London. <laughs> nice. And then took every train up to Oxford trying to protect her from falling in love with someone much better than me. In any case, while I was in England, that was when the Smiths hit. I remember this charming man came out when I'm a student and I bought every like 12 inch remix and I was obsessed with the Smiths. I thought they were the greatest. And then when I got to Rolling Stone, they already, they sort of exploded very quickly. So I didn't get to really cover them or anything. But when I got to Rolling Stone in, in, uh, at one point, Johnny Marr came out with his first solo thing. I had lunch with him and he was, I remember it was a restaurant called Aquavit, like this cool Swedish restaurant, sort of chilly. And he was this, the warm and funny and no ego and great. Never met Morrissey, big fan, until I met him. Yeah, was never meet your idols. Rolling, Rolling Stone asked me to supervise Morrissey interviewing Joni Mitchell, which is sort of like, that's like sending someone <sighs> to be a war correspondent. Like, really? okay. because- those are two very strong characters. Right. The hardest part was anyone who's supposed to supervise Morrissey. Morrissey is like, <laughs> I learned like the reason that that sort of dark wit and genius 
is also the reason the Smiths didn't exist that long. He like made it the most challenging thing. Like we were supposed to like figure out together what were the best questions to ask Joni. And he was trying to, in that brilliant Morrissey way, cause trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like for instance, anyone who knows Joni Mitchell knows the thing she least likes is being asked about like her and other women in music. She is rightly knows herself to be one of the greatest artists in music history and doesn't want to only be compared to women. So Correct. Morrissey did things like saying, Joni, I think the second question was, I want to talk about Buffy St. Marie. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, okay, is that really like the second thing we need to ask? And it's sort of like exactly what, like Morrissey just causing trouble. So I learned, okay, you know, you have certain questions, like why did the Smiths break up? And the minute I met Morrissey, I was like, I get it. I, get it. <laughs> I totally know why Morrissey broke up the Smiths. It does make me happy to hear about Johnny Marr though the coolest i yeah i i wish i had had a second lunch with him it's like the all-time coolest people he's up there bowie is number one bowie was <laughs> have him be a, have him be a music director for for one of your shows what's that get him, get johnny to be a music the music director for one of your uh your shows that's a great idea that's thank a you great idea thank I'll you give you no credit okay i appreciate that yeah no that's i don't uh i i never do so yeah that's that's fine who, okay, oh, but wait, I, oh, as an aside, oh, how, how did Brad Paisley become a Dodger fan? He could have embraced any team. I could lie and say <laughs> anything. Well, what you've I done, think, you've been doing that for the past hour and a half, but go ahead. He will not. I will give myself total credit. I was sitting in his house watching every Dodgers game because the CMAs were always in November. So I was always watching. We were like working in September, uh, you know, and, and hanging out. And he has a bar where he records and writes and where we write jokes and material and books and stuff like that. And he has a giant TV in this bar and we watch Dodgers games. And I believe, I think he caught it from me. He'll fight me on this, but he's also like a genius sort of who gets obsessed with certain things. When I first met him, I think his dad was a pretty big baseball fan. But he now is, he knows more about baseball and has more friends in baseball than, and things happen like, so Clayton Kershaw, when he lost, <laughs> when he lost, came down and hung out with us for the CMAs. And like, if you talk about the highlights of my life, I once made a, in the middle of the night after the CMAs one year, I'm packing for, to go back to LA and Brad calls me, he goes, you got to come over. And it's like one in the morning and I'm leaving at six in the morning on the morning flight. And I go, why do I have to come over? He goes, Clayton's going to come over again. Like he had been there the night before. And I'm like, and it's again, like baseball turns you into a little kid. I'm like, I'm fucking coming. Right. You never say so no. It's I, always yes. No. Yes. And. Yes. Oh no. And I got, I got in an Uber and went out all the way to his place. We hung out. All I can tell you is that in the middle of the night, I found myself and I don't drink <laughs> and Brad really doesn't drink, but I'm kind of drunk that night. And I'm making a you Darvish joke <laughs> to Clayton Kershaw. And he laughed uproariously. And I'm like, I have never been happier about a joke oh. landing than getting Clayton to laugh. So you'll see me at Twitter at wild about music. I tweet the same picture with Clayton and I, oh, I all the time. Have you played ping pong with the man? I hear he's a great ping pong player. I went with Brad when Brad played the celebrity ping pong, uh, Clayton Kershaw event. I was not, again, I'm like the roadie holding the, the, the ping pong <laughs> mallet racket. Uh, uh, I did not play. Mallet? I, did you say mallet? <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm British. It's, okay, oh, okay that's right. That's a prep school thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. clearly. <laughs> this guy's oh, played polo. You went, to, you went to what we call private school, which yeah. is public school. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah I'm, a, I'm a Brit. <laughs> I, I will tell you that I have never been more emotionally. This season has been tormentful, of course. full of torment. For so many reasons. A lot of, I mean, soap opera. Illness, it's just been great. Injuries, right. There's a pandemic. The, you know, there've been beautiful moments. The first game they opened, when they reopened it to the like general public, uh, the full, Close I went game. with Brad and I went with Phil Rosenthal, who's like my oh other my. only friend. Have you eaten and with Phil, by the way? I have eaten a thousand meals with Phil. We toured the, yeah, that's a whole other, I know, you know I'm, I'm interrupting I'll come you. I'll with Phil. That's what we'll do. Phil and I will come on. Okay. Uh, we have a project together. That's what we will do. We will talk music. How about if we just do a Springsteen discussion with you, me, and Phil? I'm in. Phil. That's, that's uh, <laughs> Can I, can I participate? <laughs> No, all of us. No, 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 no. not this day. It's you, Holly. Oh, this day. Oh, that's Phil. right. I, I know. I've been. I've been let yes. go. I'm going down to the miners. I've been. I've been sent Good down. Day. I get you. Dave. Dave number two. Yeah, I've been. I've been DFA'd. I got you. <laughs> are you. But you are. You people do call you Dave, right? They do. Like my wife is the only one who's ever called me Dave. So. It's, we can we can go Dave and David. Okay. Uh, but I think David should be first when we retitle the show. Okay, so that's it. <laughs> wow. What difference does David make? Just shoehorn himself in here. I mean, and sometimes Dave. I thought I was doing so well. Now I'm, it's all over. Are you that's not always a little, how it is. You're I know. I'm busy for a podcast. <laughs> you, David I know. is a little busy feel, for a podcast. I feel like Wally Pip now, and all of a sudden Lou Gehrig is coming in and just taking over. <laughs> That's a New York Yankees joke from but a long time I, ago I will, when, when we were back in high school. This is actually today, the 20th anniversary of when we really became close because he, this is a true story as opposed to all the other lies. Okay. So September 11th is a Tuesday, right? Yes. Friday was the day I got asked to be the head writer. Saturday or Sunday was a Jewish holiday, I believe. I don't know what Jewish holiday it is because I'm, I'm bad. But I, my but wife made just me, high holidays, we'll say. Yes. Yeah. My wife made me go to a park for something with our temple and our kids, at which point I ran into Phil, who I had written about in Rolling Stone for Everybody Loves Raymond, which was new. And I said, Phil, I was so new in TV. I said, I don't really work with a lot of, I don't direct. So I don't, I haven't really given, gone over line readings with people. Would you help me write and work with the talent for this tribute to heroes telethon thing? And he said, yes. And so 20 years ago, today, exactly around now, we had experiences that bonded us for life. He's the only person during the pandemic, we had 40 f lunches. During the first year of the pandemic, he was the only person I saw in his backyard. Uh, so yes, it, it, it's all, but it all goes back to 20 years ago today yeah. when, and this I tweeted about, and I apologize, but it, it was such an a moment, I'll never forget it. As I explained, I had won with Yusef Islam, the Muslim Public Policy Award in 2001. <laughs> that was early. We went to the Muzzies, as they are known. Like every, that's, an award show called the Muzzies. It's, that's right. Wow. Uh, okay. And uh, But I won that award. And so when 9-11 happened, I said, we have to write something that stands against all the hatred. This is the week after. There was all... There were incidents and threats and things like that. So we had Will Smith and Ali and Phil and I wrote a something for Will Smith to say 
And Ali arrived, and I'll never forget it. It was, I think, about really like uh, 2 o'clock, 20 years ago on the day we're speaking. We were at CBS Television City, and we're in a hallway, and talent is beginning to go into the studio to film the show. Will Smith is bringing Ali down the hallway, and it's a kind of crowded hallway, and Ali is shaking. as, And we hadn't seen Ali in years at that point. Your heart broke for the champ, the greatest of all time, he looked so vulnerable, and it didn't look like the Ali you wanted in your dreams. Ali stopped right in front of Phil and I, just stopped. And with the comic timing that he always had with Howard Cosell, he pulled back out of nowhere a punch, and he <laughs> took his fist and went right up to Phil's face. Like we were sta- I'm standing, it's, he and I are next to each other, but he definitely was going to punch Phil and then stopped the punch, you know, right before it hit Phil. And everyone broke up laughing. It was, the champ was there. It was, you know, whatever the illness had, you know, tried to take away from him, he was still the greatest of all time and still had perfect timing. It was brilliant. Oh my God. As I often say, I'm going to let our affiliates know we're going to go long with this episode. This uh, this is nice. I'm sorry. All right. We have it. We have it on camera that you, that you and Phil will come back and talk music and. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. All right. Very good. All right. So we have a new friend of the show. This is exciting. David Wild. <laughs> I won't even put it in quotes, friend of the show. This is uh, this legit. <laughs> this shit friend is real. Friend of Holly. Friend of Holly. Oh, Thank right. you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. This go, is so great. This was a lot of fun. Go right for your you Beatle. Dave's masterful, Dave's masterful editing job. It's going to be a lot of David, Dave Clark in it, so don't worry. <laughs> Too much Dave Clark. <laughs> you do a good oh. Beatle. I'll tell you this story. (laughs) Sunday night before the Grammys this year, we're pretty settled in our show, except we don't have someone to give the last award. Someone had backed out, some other legend. The executive producer says, David, do you have anybody? I said, if you want me to ask Ringo, I think I can get Ringo to come and give the last award, which if you watch the Grammys this year, it was I thought it was a great show. I was very proud of it. One thing that was interesting was because the vaccination process hadn't really kicked in, almost no one was over 40 on the show. It was a very young show. And I said, we need a legend to give out the last award. It's going to go to Beyonce or Billie Eilish or whoever it's going to go to. It'd be cool if it came from a Beatle. So middle of the night, as you might have picked up, I haven't slept in a long time. I wrote a Jerry Maguire type letter, email to Ringo going, (laughs) here's why I need you to come to the Grammys and give out the last award. Just like the fact that we were in the tent Sunday, we were keeping a top secret where we were. No one knew. So I wrote Ringo and said, and Elizabeth Freund, his publicist, I wrote the two of them and I said, here's the deal. We're at the convention center above the parking lot. You drive in, you wave at me, you hand the Grammy to someone, you're back in your car, you're home by this hour. (laughs) You know, I made the pitch that way. Cut to Grammy night. I'm, I'm sitting, we're on the deck where we were with Trevor Noah and all the stars. And I get Ringo calls. He goes, uh, David, they want me to come upstairs. And I'm like, what? He goes, they make me leave the car. I was like, uh, yeah, well, what's the Grammys? You have to, he goes, oh, I thought it was like a drive through vaccination. <laughs> <laughs> he really thought he was just going to like be able to put his arm out like a vaccination and it, well, and drive through. But I said, no, no, you got to get up. So he and Barbara Bach got out of the, the car, walked up the stairs, walked over to where I was at the prompter. And he goes, oh, if I'd known this, I would have gotten dressed up more. And uh, I was like, you look 
great. And I would have said that if he didn't, but he did look great. But also I'm trying to get him on stage. Right. We're at a live TV show. So he walks on stage. My wife texts me within seconds. Ringo looks amazing. Yeah. I showed that to Barbara Bach. He goes, oh, good. Next, Twitter starts doing Ringo is 80 became the biggest trend of right. the whole Grammy night. It was like people flipped out about how great he looked. So by the time he walked off stage, 40 seconds later, after giving the word to Billie Eilish and her brother, I literally was able to go, look, people are talking, everyone is talking about it. It was like in real time, all of that feedback was happening. And he was back in the car and home within 45 minutes. So that's how the world works now. You were at the Paul McCartney show at Dodger Stadium, weren't you? I was out of town for that show. Oh, my God. Possibly the most emotional night of my life was just when Paul goes and introduces Ringo. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm seeing this. It was just insane. There's a uh, book I did with Ringo that came out last Christmas uh, about the all-star band, the history. But he tells the story of that in there. And when he talks about, like, we did the Grammys Beatles tribute with both of them, which was an amazing experience. But, like, my favorite things are when I'm talking to him, and he'll say things like he'll play me a new record and he'll go, you hear that bass? It's the best bass player in the world. Paul McCartney. <laughs> and I'm like, he like, he'll still have like the love of Paul's yeah. bass playing. He goes, best bass player I ever met. <laughs> it's true. Paul McCartney oh, no. isn't that he is a gr the, probably the greatest bass player. I mean, if I, he listen... couldn't sing or write, he'd be the best bass player. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. All right, so we're going to talk 70s next time, or we're... we're <laughs> what, Springsteen. Springsteen. Okay. <laughs> Holly's got to study up a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll give her the uh, the Cliff Note version of... Uh, whatever what these, Phil wants. Whatever about, what, whatever Phil wants. That's what we'll call songs, this episode. About songs about food. Oh, we could do that. Songs about food. Yeah. That might be good. Somebody I, feed me music or okay. something like that. We'll okay. do a, oh. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. Well, oh, we're that's the, great. And then right. we could do a whole other one on Springsteen. All right. Well, I, I hope I get invited to that episode. <laughs> oh, that yeah. sounds like hey, a you can call in. You okay. Oh, wonderful. In. Okay. <laughs> nice. You're yeah, laughing please. too hard, Holly. I, I'm not my enjoying show, this. I'm planning my, my future. I know, yeah, right? My show, She's, my show is your show, Dave. Uh, <laughs> what a giver. Well, this is such a delight. Thank you so much, David. This uh, You've given us more than enough. To... That's what my wife said this morning. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay. Thank you, honey. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was nice knowing you. You've given me more. Uh, there you go. Oh, this is... Happy Rocktober. Are you a uh, are you pro or con Rocktober? Do you ever call it Rocktober? I love Rocktober. Okay, you are a Rocktober fan. Good. I like, I like Rock in Peace. I love Rocktober. I embrace it all. Oh, very good. I, and I love puns. And in case you hadn't noticed. No, I do. I, I understand. When I, uh, I like to throw like, oh my God, I hate, hate puns, but I do enjoy them. I, I wrote a piece for Men's Journal, which was owned by Jan Wenner. And the guy read the piece and we like, Kiefer Sutherland. He goes, the piece is very good. There are three puns, which of course we'll have to lose. And I was like, why? And I said, he goes, you can't use a pun. And I'm like, that's like saying you can't use a hammer. You know? <laughs> Just use your hammer well. And puns are very intelligent. Puns are very uh, uh, intelligent. Effective. Yes. It's use your hammer well. Effective. I I think that's that that'll be our, our catchphrase. Why right. does Holly understand me in a way our wives ne neither of them ever will? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, that's I think that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> This was really this was really fun for me. Thank you to my new co-host. 
Damn it. Thank you. Dave, thank you for coming as your guest today. Yeah. It was a pleasure. I, I hope to be invited we're, we're back one day. We're going to have you back. Yeah. Oh, Rest that's assured. Nice. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. We're looking forward to talking about Springsteen, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to text I'm going to text Phil right now and obligate him. Okay. That's good. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, I know, right? We got to go pick up all these names that you dropped. Oh, my God. What a mess. It looks like my garage here. <laughs> well, great talking to you. Work hard. Get a good nap. And uh, we'll, uh, when you're fully rested. and uh, yeah, I will never be fully rested. Okay. Well, that's good. We like you like this. Yeah, when, yeah, when you're punchy. <laughs> make sure, When yeah. you're punchy, give us a call. That's, that's when we'll, uh, we'll, okay. we'll send out the back signal for you. All right. Th- all right. Nice Th- talking to you. Yeah, thank you nice so much. You. Yeah, thanks, thanks David. Steve. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was our super special guest, apparently, David Wilde. Give him one topic and he's off and running. He's kind of the ideal guest. I could see why people like putting him on other podcasts. I why think he's he, in such demand. Yeah, we're going to call him friend of the show, for real. I don't know if, if he wanted to tell us the absolute truth, that he's going to be our friend. But I believe he is. We're taking that seriously. He is officially a friend of the show and maybe even a friend. He's so funny and warm and has great stories. That's uh, that's Tenafly for you, right? Those Tenafly people, they are open and warm and loving. So thank you, David Wilde, for, for doing this. And also thank you to Pantheon Podcasts. I also want to thank Carolyn Prosky, who's a friend, but I ran into her literally at a run at the Dodgers 5K, and she was good enough to introduce me to David's wife, who, based on our three-minute conversation, recommended me to David Wilde for the podcast. So Thank you to these two lovely ladies for forcing David onto our podcast. This was a really enjoyable episode. Totally thrilled to have him. And by the way, Dave, just so you know, you're still my number one host. Hopefully I'm still your number one partner. co-host. Her, her partner in crime. You're my partner. Always. Yes, you'll always be my partner. Yeah. As we discussed, you you kind of raised my stock level. Let's wrap up this episode. Please subscribe. There's new episodes every Friday. And happy Rocktober to everyone. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.